Let's open our Bibles together to the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 4. I'm just going to ask you to, uh, to keep that open in front of you there. I'm going to be back in the Old Testament uh, wisdom literature here for a little while in what is probably the most honest, most candid description of what life in this world is really like uh, that we have in all the Bible. And so you know, it makes Ecclesiastes unique in that type of literature, but not unique in what the Bible does. Um, the Bible is not some you know, self-help book that we take off the shelf every now and then. It's not a historical um, you know, novel or uh, you know, a work of fiction. Um, the Bible tells us what, what life is actually like uh, in this world. And so God's Word from the beginning, Genesis to Revelation, uh, this is the script of the great drama, the story of redemption that we have uh, before us. And every part of God's Word uh, contributes to that. And maybe you can remember sitting down with a grandfather or a grandmother and listening to them share about their own growing up and their experiences and the things that they learned you know, over the decades. Or maybe you want to learn some things about what you can only read of in the history books. And as you're listening, you're thinking, wow, I'm glad I didn't have to live through that. Or that sounds really hard. Or maybe, look at how this experience has shaped our family and how we respond to certain things as a family. Ecclesiastes is kind of like sitting down with the grandfather who is sharing his experiences, what he's learned over the course of his life. And without that, there's no record. Without it, there's really no understanding of how we should respond uh, to the same vanities under the sun that we all face. Uh, so we need to sit and listen to this wise Kohelet, this preacher, teacher, uh, who may very well have been uh, King Solomon himself, if not someone who is intimately familiar with his life and experience. Uh, and what we've learned so far from this wise teacher, aligns with our own experience, is that life on this earth is vanity. It is temporal. It is fleeting. Wisdom, wealth, work, certainly not bad things. Um, but they're here one minute, gone the next. Your life, my life in some, here one minute, gone the next. Um, now that, that, that could be very discouraging and very depressing. It often is if we don't have an answer for this vanity, for the mist that is our lives. Um, but let's give praise to God, the one who made us transcends all that is under the sun. He's not temporal. He's eternal. And we remember from, uh, from the last chapter, way back when, when we talked about this, that God has put eternity, He's put this forever sense in our hearts so that we have this, this longing that we have been made for a forever. And we know it's coming. So that longing, that hope, that glory is what answers the frustrations that we experience today. It gives us purpose. It gives us an intention, even a contentment while we wait for the enduring and uh, eternal kingdom of God, a kingdom that the Lord Jesus has secured uh, for us. 
But we still need to listen, know what to expect, what's important on how to respond everyday life. And that's where chapter 4 here, it, it tells us that we do this together. Okay, there's no lone rangers. It only hurts us and those around us when we try, try to live life this way. Um, so let me pray and then we will look closer at the wisdom of Ecclesiastes 4. Lord God, we ask that you would speak to us as we um, sit under the power, the authority, and the inspiration of your word. Uh, Lord, as we come to you, feed us through this living word. It is our desire, but only you and the working of your spirit can show us what you want to show us through this word and how to apply it to our lives. Lord, we're grateful for this opportunity. We're grateful that you would uh, communicate to us in this way, in a way that we can understand. And so we lean upon you and look to you to guide us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, I think it was last spring that I was uh, playing Capture the Flag with a group of students right here behind the church. And there wasn't many of us on, on a Wednesday night. And we broke into two teams you know, one team was on that half, the playground half of the property, and the other team was on the river and mud half of the property over here. And, uh, but, it, but it was interesting. It proved to be a real challenge when someone was captured and they were taken to the jail, which was the picnic table, because the whole mission of the team changed. It was no longer, we've got to capture the flag. It was, we've got to rescue this person because we don't have enough people to go capture the flag. All our, our energies have to be in, in rescuing uh, this person. And then if two or three people were captured, well, then you were pretty well finished if you only had a team of five. Um, because everything was so, you know, so heavily guarded. So there's real strength in numbers when it comes to capture the flag. Um, if one team has the numbers, well, then they can create a diversion over here while others go after the flag and, and complete the mission. And th- this is true in all of life. Okay, whether you're playing capture the flag or tug of war, unless you've got you know, someone like Heath on your team, there is strength in numbers. You want numbers. We have been made to do life in numbers, to be in community, in relationship with others. So why is this so important? Chapter 4 gives us the practical insight here. Um, this need for relationship and companionship in the face of oppression Uh, In all of our work, we need this. In everyday life, it is only to our advantage to have those who share the journey with us. Um, Look how important it is here in the face of oppression. I'll begin reading those opening verses. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Uh, So it shouldn't surprise us here uh, that there is deep rebellion and corruption in the human heart uh, that really does push against, fight against what is good and right and true. And those who occupy positions of power or have been entrusted with positions of power will take that corruption with them. So there is this tendency then to abuse that power. The more power, 
the more possibility of abuse. Um, we see this unfolding every day. Uh, the leadership of the nation among state leadership. And sadly, it, it should sadden us, we see this within the church. Those who are looked up to in, in positions of leadership and influence, they're the ones that must be the most guarded about the potential of abusing that power and influence. Um, and really what's been uncovered recently about Ravi Zacharias, a good example of this. You know, a brother in the Lord who spoke the truth courageously, boldly, um, who could articulate a Christian worldview better than anyone pretty much I've ever seen. But yet there was a dark secret. Um, highly respected, highly influential, and in such a position he could continue in unfaithfulness um, and abuse, abuse several women over many years. You know, I, I, don't, I don't know the state of men's souls. Um, and I want to believe that Ravi is with the Lord, his sins covered by the blood of the Lord Jesus. But he's left great pain behind. Um, victims in need of comfort. Where do the oppressed go for comfort? In the language here, it's actually describing those who have been frauded, had things stolen from them, and th things that continue to be stolen from them. Now they're, they're under the, the thumb of power, and th those that are in that place often have little recourse, little hope for change in their uh, circumstances. They need someone by their side. They need the, the comfort of another. But life under the sun seems to offer little of that. Um, in God's word, it speaks the great evil of oppression. Places like Leviticus 19, you shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. And here's the prophet Zechariah. Thus says the Lord of hosts, render true judgments and show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. Um, the sin and corruption in the hearts of men, it is drawn just like a magnet away from um, mercy and towards oppression. Um, it's an ugly thing. The wise teacher hears it saying, well, I wish we were all dead. That's not what he's communicating. But this is going to be so painful that he recognizes those who have gone before us or those who have not yet been born are spared this, having to see and, and experience this type of, of pain and discomfort. Not a need and a love for neighbor, but actually a hatred and oppression of neighbor. Um, just to see how this flips God's command on its head is astounding. If we have a love for God, we, we must have a love for neighbor. They, they will go hand in hand. They're, they're interconnected. And that love expresses itself in real comfort. Especially to those who are, who are right there under that, that thumb of oppression. Trapped in circumstances that uh, there seems to be a little hope. And this is how poverty works a lot of the time. Um, typically, the, the poverty that we see is just an indicator of a more systemic underlying poverty and underlying oppression. Okay, When you have someone, that, that's a child or an adult, um, has never really known what it's like to be cared for, to be loved well, 
if they've been in, in a family that has been fractured and abusive from their earliest days. And so then there becomes little, little care, little opportunity for education, education about anything and everything. And then employment becomes difficult um, to gain, to keep. I mean, these worldview patterns have been so instilled really apart from a person's choosing a lot of the time. And then more are born into this and that pattern continues. And I know it's easy for us to think, well, look at the opportunities we have around us. They they could change something. They could do something different to break that pattern. But I hope we're hearing it's not that simple. And many don't know that there is anything else to live for or to live by. Little comfort for the oppressed. So we need to be sensitive to this as brothers and sisters in Christ um, to work against it when we see this uh, oppression by whatever means that we can. Again, it's rarely just a handout of material goods. Uh, Certainly a time for that in, in emergencies where that's appropriate. But if that keeps happening, it doesn't address the real need. The need of repaired relationships, repaired relationships with God, repaired relationships with, with family and friends, repaired relationships with the church where one can actually see and learn what we are about as human beings. And it's from there, it's from that repair work with God, with others, that there's transformation, that there's hope. Um, and again, you, you don't have to be... Uh, materially poor to be frauded or under the thumb of oppression. You know, those with great wealth, again, that's often translated into power and control in our society, but they can find themselves trapped by oppressive people or, or systems. Um, their own relationships can be in shambles. Uh, there may be this great poverty of a spirit and blindness to the extortion of the evil one who is using such wealth to keep them blind and deaf and under his control. Um, I want to share just just briefly here. Uh, To be under the thumb of oppression or abuse by those in power, it, it does not in any way give that person or group of people some moral high ground or moral authority. Um, the, the idea that that the oppressive person or system that that must be brought down, it must be silenced so that the oppressed, whether that's real or perceived, you know, can be heard and enjoy more of what the oppressor has. Um, this, this is at the heart of, of critical theory, which has really taking, been taking root over the last several decades. We're seeing the fruit of it now around us. The idea that we're, we're all oppressors in some way, and we're all oppressed in some way. Um, the real problem with this, and that's what's steering you know, a moral conscience of what's right and wrong, the real problem is it doesn't acknowledge reality according to God's design. It completely disregards the truth that we are image bearers of God, that we, that we all have, have a sinful and rebellious hearts and we are accountable to God and accountable to others. And so critical theory, it's a little more complex of doing what we do in Genesis chapter 3. Casting the blame somewhere else. Someone else's responsibility. Um, in the end, what this does, it, it only it exalts sin. It, 
It, it will praise what is evil and wrong while tearing down what is good and right. It will turn, uh, turn uh, it on its head. So we need to be guarded against this. Be guarded against this type of ideology. It's anti-God. It is anti-truth. Remember, power corrupts. So critical theory and all that offshoots, um, really handmaiden for those with some power to gain more power. Um, so we need one another. And we need the church to hold fast, to stand upon the truth that we are our worst oppressors. We're finished without a great Savior. So we need each other. We need others to share this journey. Look now how this applies to work. Verse 4. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches, that he never asks, For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. I noticed my daughter had written on her, the board, whiteboard that she has in her room uh, a quote here. Uh, it says, comparison kills contentment. Comparison kills contentment. Just a, a beautiful application of uh, the wisdom of God's word here. So much of our striving from day to day comes by looking at other people and comparing ourselves with other people. Uh, and as we compare, we envy. We want what they have. Actually, we don't want what they have. We want just a little bit more than they have. Whether it's just material stuff or skills, we want just to be a little bit better. We'd like that job and not the one that we're in. We'd like to play that position and not the one that we're playing. We want the advantage in some way. And it doesn't take long for us to see how that advantage so quickly disappears. There's always going to be someone who's younger, faster, smarter, wealthier than we are. And so the wisdom here said that this is vanity. This is a losing battle. Proverbs 14. A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. Doesn't mean we stop working. Doesn't mean we stop striving. Verse 5. But we do so content with what God has apportioned in this season of life that we're in. We, we keep our toil measured with the joy and the satisfaction of living life to the glory of God. So you can live happy, quiet, content with, with this much, or you can live stressed out, anxious, on the brink of breakdown with, with this much. Which one will you choose? Which one are you choosing? Verse 7-8 it illustrates the vanity of, of taking both hands and being unsatisfied. Uh, without uh, friends, without family, church family, our, our toil can become very self-indulgent, unsatisfying. You know, hey, I've got this extra money. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll go to Disneyland by myself. I've got all this extra money. I can buy this sweet sports car and drive around town by myself. You say, well, I'm introverted, and that sounds really great. Um, 
Introverts need people. They want to be around people. It just looks a little different than the extrovert. But even with people, even with family and friends, church, neighbors, we can labor and never be satisfied. We may labor to support someone else. We may labor for that inheritance we want to leave with another. We've already looked at that the vanity behind that. We can work ourselves to the bone and never be satisfied. Millionaire John Rockefeller probably heard this. But he was asked one time, uh, you know, he was extremely influential. Um, he said, well, how much money is enough? To which he responded, just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. I mean, that's a very honest response, but very dangerous. Brothers and sisters, if that is our attitude, if it's just a little bit more toward our labors and the wealth that it may bring, we will never be satisfied. We will not know the deep contentment And we're just going to follow on this broad path of consumer that most of, at least the Western culture, is walking down. And not a narrow path of service and generosity. There are joys and there is happiness in this life that no, no amount of money can buy. And we will often sacrifice those things in pursuit of that little bit more. Jesus says in Luke 18 how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And he, he said that to one who had grown up in the church. Very faithful and obedient churchgoer. Hope that gets our attention. I mean, maybe even a, a gut punch to the Western church. We can have it all and have nothing. We'll be the richest on the outside and the most impoverished on the inside. So being in, being in healthy relationships and in a community is what guards against this, enables us to serve. Um, you know, just think about that for a second. If we are if we're striving for that little bit more, striving to get a little bit farther ahead, we are usually in some way, shape, or form stepping on someone or putting someone else down to do that. Uh, we, we don't have to be doing this intentionally, but it's something to think about. You know, if we want, if we want to go to the, the Lone Ranger and skip out or run from the communities that that God has given us, whether it's a church, family, maybe those in your, your work environment, then we're actually being anti-neighbor. Um, we're not loving our neighbor who needs us like we need them. Um, serving others uh, for their good. This could be the poor, the orphan, the immigrant. That is actually serving our own good um, in the communities that God has placed us. So verses 9 through 12 shows the alternative to this isolation. You read these words. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. And how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. It's a simple picture of two people who are sharing this journey from one place to the next. And if one of them falls off into a ravine, there's someone else there to help them out. Um, if they're ambushed, they need to fight. Being together is really helpful for that. 
gets cold at night when you're traveling from one place to the next. So the closer they can sleep, the better chance of staying warm. And verse 12 there is a summary of the whole point with a little proverb. Okay, three-standed cord, it's tough to break. There is strength in numbers, physically and spiritually. On the way back from Michigan, we stopped at the Arkansas uh, Welcome Center uh, in Corning there, up north. And uh, pulled over for a few minutes, got back in the van, tried to crank in, the van doesn't start. You know, we're two and a half hours away from home. And we're the only ones at the Welcome Center. Um, and a few minutes later, though, there was a gal who drove in, and she asked if we needed help, and I kind of explained what I thought was going on. She said, and she said we can try jumping. I said, well, sure, we'll, we'll try that. So we tried jumping the vehicle. That wasn't, wasn't the issue, and it didn't work. But then she said, well, I think there may have been a service station back in Corning there. I, I'll go back and, and see. Um, and so I said, well, you certainly don't have to do that, but if you want. So she... She went back into town and, and ended up coming back to us at the Welcome Center saying, well, there's no service. This is on New Year's Day, of course. And, uh, but she came back and said, well, I have a number for a tow service. Um, very thoughtful of this, of this gal. Um, you know, even though she wasn't traveling with us, it was, I mean, God's providence in having her stop um, and then over the next couple of hours before the starter finally kicked over and we were able to drive home, we had several people stop uh, and offer, offer to help in some way. Uh, very encouraging for us and a good, a good lesson for us. We need, we need traveling companions. We need others to share in this journey, whether it's you know, traveling back to our earthly home or on the road to our eternal home. Okay, it's the company of others that encourages us, that helps us, that fights with us, keeps us accountable. John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. You know, Christian is making his way towards the celestial city and he's, he has hopeful for a companion. And they're traveling, they encounter some water that they have to cross. And as he's crossing this, this water, he, he starts to sink. Um, he falls under the waves. And here's what he says. or Here's what, what Bunyan wrote. Christian began to sink and crying out to his good friend, Hopeful, he said, I sink in deep waters. Billows go over my head. All the waves go over me. Then said the other, Be of good cheer, my brother. I feel the bottom, and it is good. I feel the bottom. Um, I pray that there is such a companion in your life, a hopeful, who can share the journey with you. And, and I, I pray that, that you can be a hopeful to another uh, along this journey of faith. It's also in the company of others that allows us to serve. This, this came out in our Sunday school class a little bit this morning. Um, you know, if you're one of those who easily say, you know, um, I've got this. I don't want to inconvenience anyone. I'll take care of it. I'll do this myself. Don't need anything. You need to take that before the Lord. Uh, that that's not a spiritual high ground. You're actually not loving your neighbor well, which I know sounds backwards you're not um, now in sin we can take advantage of this I realize that um, but we need to allow the church family our neighbors to meet a need when it is present um, they can't meet a need if they don't know about it if everything is just fine all the time when it isn't um, then, uh, then they won't know 
Um, it may show layers of selfishness and pride in us. Um, it is godly to ask for help when there is a real need. Just as we're willing to, to provide help uh, when the other need arises. A little harder uh, in verses 13 through 16 here to connect this with this theme of community and companionship, but I think it aligns with what we've talked about already with our labors. Poverty and wisdom much better than wealth and uh, advancement with some type of folly. Um, a poor but wise youth is going to take the throne from an older but foolish king. The older ones are supposed to be the wise ones. But if not, then the people are just going to replace their leader with another. But in time, that young leader is going to be replaced with another leader. And on and on it goes. It's vanity. Time passes and people are forgotten. Time passes and places are forgotten. Time passes and we will be forgotten. So let's cherish the time we've been given in the company of those God has given to us. Um, And then this value that God places on community, that this love... Uh, for our neighbors, as God has so loved us, it really speaks to our identity, church family. Um, the labels that we tend to put on ourselves. It's easy to identify, or at least it seems so, w- with people who you know, can understand us, understand what we're talking about, if we use labels. Maybe labels like conservative, or liberal, or right, or left. Um, and then oftentimes, Christian becomes that tag on to that. A secondary uh, label of some sort. And that is very dangerous. To be a a Christian is not a secondary or add-on identity. Um, It's not a a secondary allegiance. Christian is our highest and primary allegiance. Primary label. Our allegiance is to God. to, To love Him. To obey Him. To love our neighbor. So one one commentator, he says this well, the task of love is far more complex than can ever be captured in a political ideology. Okay, so when we're confronted with a person, with a policy or an idea, our first question should not be, is this conservative or is this liberal? Is this left or right? Our first question is, is this biblical? Does this align with reality according to God's design? That's our goal. That's what we're fighting for um, as those who love our neighbor, not for a certain platform. Human beings and this world that we've been trusted to care for will only flourish in obedience to God. So I hope we're hearing the need for community. I hope we're hearing the need for companionship within the body of Christ. The Bible is all about people in community including beginning with God Himself as the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, then the church, then this world. Um, I just think about the culture in which we live, so highly you know, anti-community it seems, so individualistic. Um, I'll get her done, I'll do this myself, it's all about me. That is not what we are made for and that is not what we have awaiting us. I can't help but wonder if this is why the church is so anemic and ineffective in, in American society. We don't think we need covenant community. And to be committed to that community. I can get my Jesus. I can get my study. I can watch my worship. 
And then nothing like a pandemic to, to sort of shut out community and make us think we're all going to be okay. Family, we, we need to think differently to this. We need to commit ourselves working towards a different way of relating than what we're seeing. Rooting out jealousy, rooting out envy through the power of the gospel and the union that we have in the Lord Jesus. In John 17, kind of wrap up with this. In John 17, Jesus is, is praying to the Father. He's longing for the companionship that they share. And he desires that companionship for, for all those he came to save. I'll just, I want to read just part of the prayer from the mouth of Jesus. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus came to live, to die, to take his life up again, to restore what has been broken through our sin, the community, the companionship that we've been made for with God, that we've been made for with each other. Sin has severed it. Jesus has come to restore it. So in union with Christ, by faith, that is something we can now work towards. We can serve. We can work to restore broken community. So we're, even though we're redeemed as individuals by Christ, we are redeemed for each other. I think we're seeing that right now. As you're gathered here in this sanctuary, this is a place. We are a, a people that God has provided for fellowship and maturity in Christ-likeness. We can't go it alone. We've never, never meant to do this. Uh, we're just warming up for an eternity together in worship as the family of God. Let's, let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. For your word is truth. Your word shows us what you have made us for and how we are to glorify you and love you out of your great love for us. Lord God, you are the perfect community bound in perfect relationship in yourself. And you've imprinted that upon us. Lord, restore relationships that may be broken. Bring healing Lord, show us how we can come alongside one another. We can come alongside the oppressed in all, in all different areas of life. Um, help us to see that even in our great oppression, you have come to our rescue. Lord, we thank you for this time in your word. Send us now in faith and obedience, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.